From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across Northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Hello, Andy. Hello, Marin. Hello, hello. It is another episode of The Lowlander, and this week we will be looking at editions of the regular service newsletter that were sent out to the men between the 5th and 11th of February, 1945. Uh, it's a little bit less to go on this week, I'm afraid. Uh, we found these editions of The Lowlander in the War Diaries, and as often is the case, the War Diaries aren't the tidiest or most organised documents. Mm. There are only four days of Lowlanders in them for, for this week. Uh, but... That doesn't mean to say we can't still dig into them. True. Uh, however, before we do that, remind us what's going on in the war this week. Okay, well, uh, this week, beginning of February, so we would have had the Yalta Conference um, in Yalta. That's with Roosevelt, Churchill and Stalin all getting together to discuss what happens after the war is over. Uh, Paraguay declares war on Germany and Europe. <laughs> Not Europe, okay. Germany and Japan, and Ecuador declares war on Japan, which feels wow. a bit like a feels a bit like an afterthought, to be honest with you. But um, oh, I'll tell you what else, else. The um, it's the Battle of Pokoku and the Irrawaddy River Ops. They begin in Burma as well. Okay, but shall we find out where the jocks are first? Tell us where the men of the fifty second Lowland Division are, please, this week, and what is going on. Well, it's all changed in the fifty second. So we've been in the Roar Triangle for feels like months now. Forever. Um, What's going to happen now in 21st Army Group, which is under General Montgomery, is the 1st Canadian Army under uh, General Carrar. They're going to be launching Operation Veritable this week uh, on the 7th and 8th of February. Now, this is to clear what's known as the Rhineland. So that's the, the, the bit of land between the River Mass mm. and the Rhine. And this is all getting ready for the Rhine crossing, uh, which is going to happen in late March. Um, so this area, the Rhineland, needs to be cleared first. And it's kind of it's kind of hard to describe the route. It's kind of woods, but it's quite low lying. Uh, there's a few hills, but it's kind of wet, and it's it's. I mean, I've, we've been there quite a few times. It's it's not the most picturesque part of the world, um, and it's not perhaps the nicest place to fight over. So this is going to be launched uh, towards the end of the week, um, and it's going to be absolutely huge. And in fact, it gets bigger and bigger as the battle goes on. Because even though geographically the area isn't particularly large. They're trying to cram as many units in there to clear it as quickly mm. as possible. And actually, that tactic or that strategy doesn't really work because what ends up is the, a very congested battlefield, which doesn't allow you any room for manoeuvre. Um, uh, for example, I mean, the Canadians have three divisions in it, and they're really dealing with the northern part of the, the Rhineland, which is all the um, which is the area that's been flooded around the Rhine, so they've got their, their amphibious vehicles. But 30 Corps under General Horrocks, friend of the show, his job with 34 is to clear the Reichswald and then down into the towns of Cleve and Gauch and Cleve Car and places like that. Got you, got you. This gets really messy, really quickly, huge traffic jams. The German uh, First Parachute Army under General Slem, they put up a really stiff resistance. And what this means is it starts to bog down and they start looking for answers. And one of the answers 
is to bring up the 52nd Lowland Division and mm. join them into 30 Corps. But that's going to happen next week. Um, so the, the division itself has moved up and it's lying, the division is spread out fairly wide because a huge amount of the British Army is involved in the veritable campaign. So they're holding the line and getting ready to help between uh, Nijmegen and Venlo, which is quite a large area. So all the division brigades are spread out and they're actually just waiting. One thing to note is all of the war diaries and all of the people that, that were there uh, remember the opening barrage of Operation Veritable because it was absolutely huge. Um, but we'll talk more about what their involvement was next week. Um, but that's where the jocks are. So they've moved up, they're out of the Roar Triangle, and they're ready for the next phase. Blimey, I feel proper educated. <laughs> Should we get going then? Yeah, let's go. 5th of February, 1945. Berlin Bonfire. Air reconnaissance has brought back glowing accounts of Saturday's raid on Berlin. Observation. Somewhat impeded by the pall of smoke, two miles long by a mile wide, counted eight direct hits on the Air Ministry and many other of the War Office of the Reich Chancellery, Gestapo HQ and the Ministry of Agriculture. Devastation at five railway stations and the Tempelhof marshalling yards will conceivably prolong for some days the hospitality of Berlin is showing the host of refugees have taken shelter there. On Saturday night, RAF Lancasters delivered concentrated attacks against the benzoyl plants at Bottrop and Dortmund. Benzoyl plants. I don't know much about benzoyl plants, but I seem to remember that this, this raid didn't exactly go to plan because the, 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 the big raid was in March, so that's a yep. couple of months away. Um, but this, this is the one where um, oh, there was something like 100,000 buildings destroyed, and the idea was that they would focus on the government district. Yep. To, to break the will of the people. And, um, yeah, that kind of backfired a bit because the people looked up at the sky, saw all these bombs dropping and went, well, we don't like that very much. No, I mean, I, there's also there's a little bit of revelry in the fact things are burning without maybe considering... I mean, obviously, it's the Nazis, it's the, all the rest of it, but but firebombing and, and what have you is, is, is well, it's a, know, it's, a, it's a difficult... It's a difficult thing to process nowadays. Do you know, it's, it's another lens through which I don't think we, we look at um, bombing often enough, and that's the way it gets reported. The, yeah. the, I mean, okay, not getting to the nuance of the actual language being used, but yes, the way, the way it gets reported, the way it gets written down, how these, how these reports and these narratives are created that describe um, firebombing and, and, you know, great destruction and fire ravaging yeah. buildings and stuff and bits and pieces it, it, it just builds builds a huge amount of resentment later on yes um, and, and of course should, some should. of the people some of the people reading this would have remembered the blitz and that does that can go two ways it's like oh god that's terrible i mm. remember when i was bombed also there's a lot of this you know well you serve you deserve it uh, and so it gets really it gets really messy but that's an interesting report isn't it it is it's um, a bit dark to start with but that's that's war for you that one February 5th, 1945. Sunday service in the field. Well, this isn't actually a news report, is it, Merrin? It's actually yeah. a drawing, and it's... Well, I, they've definitely sacked the, um, the the old artist and they brought a new one in. <laughs> yeah, I think they must have done. This This is... Um, it says by Henderson Blythe, and we, we, we do know who this is. This is Robert Henderson Blythe. Right. Who, who was born in Glasgow, in Newlands. He studied mm-hmm. at the Glasgow, Glasgow School of Art from 34 until 39, and he joined the Royal Army Medical Corps in 1941, so ah. at the end of 
set up with them to the end of the war. His unit was um, 157 Ambulance, which is based in Hamburg. Okay, and where where he was was the influence on a lot of his lot of his um, paintings at the time. Now, he sent some works off to the IWM in 1942, mm-hmm. and I, I've got to check that date because that seems early for the Imperial War Museum. But uh, one of those was purchased for five guineas, and he tried again later on to sell bigger pictures and more pictures, but they turned him down. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you know um, Dali's Christ on the Cross at Kelvin Grove. I do. Yes, it's my it's my it's my uh, grandmother's favourite painting. Well, it, 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 one of his one of his most famous paintings is not dissimilar in that there's um, a, a, a view across a bombed town, and there are definitely echoes of Hamburg there, and green fields beyond it, and the central motif is shattered Calvary. It's the figure of a hollow Christ figure, broken and headless, and surrounded by debris, and just at the, at the foot of the cross, there's a field ambulance that's parked close to the ruins. Ah. Yeah. Oh, wow. It, but I tell, I tell you what, my favourite, because there are, I mean, his, his range was phenomenal. He did all sorts of different styles as well. My favourite is one um, called Dawn Without Glory, which was a tribute to the men of the 2nd British Expeditionary Force, who, of course, embarked for France after Dunkirk. And we'll find a picture of that and put it on Twitter. Well, of course, you mentioned he's part of 157 Field Ambulance. That is the Field Ambulance. Um, for those of you who don't know, the, the, each brigade within a division has a, a particular Field Ambulance unit that covers their division. And 157 Field Ambulance covers 157 Brigade. And as we remember from a few episodes ago, 157 Brigade was the Glasgow Brigade. It had uh, the, the the 5th and the 6th. Uh, battalions of Highland Infantry and the 1st Battalion, the Glasgow Highlanders. So it's all sort of joining up, you know, the, the fact that he would have been to Kelvin Grove undoubtedly to see mm. that painting because it's the most famous painting in, in Kelvin Grove Art Gallery. And the fact that he's got a field ambulance on 2nd BEF yeah. um, because, of course, 2nd BEF, although the whole division went over there in 1940 to fight in the Normandy uh, Peninsula, actually 157 Brigade is the only brigade that fought the Germans um, before they retreated out of Cherbourg at the end of mm. or the middle of June. Mm. I tell you something else we'll pick up on here. This is um, a picture of the Sunday service in the field, and what we've actually got is we've got a pastor mm-hmm. or reverend standing at the front. We've got the, the 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 men clearly in uniform, just all heads bowed, hands in front of them, listening carefully to what's being said. Yeah, um, because the most famous or infamous um, chaplain during the Second World War, one of the most famous, was the Reverend Ronald Selby White, who was the senior chaplain of the 52nd Lowland Division. Correct. Yes. He was also the radio padre on the BBC. He, he joined the Territorials before the war, and then he became padre of, um, no, I should get this wrong, 7th, 9th Battalion of the Royal Scots. Correct, and yes. Then he became um, senior chaplain to the 52nd Lowland Division in 1942. But did you know this? When when his, when his he started broadcasting for the BBC, his messages were being listened to by prisoners of war, and MI9 was keen to make use of them to pass messages on to the, the various camps. So he had to continue the talks that were only supposed to last for six months um, mm-hmm. right, right the way throughout. In 1943... Selby Wright's program became the second most listened to radio program on on the forces radio. Um, something like ten million people a week were listening to it, and he used to get lots of mail that was very embarrassing. So <laughs> he, he used to get like eight hundred or a thousand um, letters a week. One, he, he did a discussion on VD, and that brought in a couple of hundred letters. And the, 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 the other one that brought in loads and loads of letters, including including um, reports of the fact that um, his talk had actually brought people together again. 
was one on the ideals of love and marriage, which he called Twitterpating. It's a real word. It's a real word, Twitterpating. And somewhere I've got um, a transcript or a, a little leaf that, that talks about Twitterpating. I'll have to dig it out. So it means it means being swept off your feet by someone you quite fancy. And um, I tell you what, the word itself was first used. Oh Lord, this is a font of knowledge, isn't it? Um, 1942, it appeared in the film Bambi. There you go. <laughs> what we should so so let's my takeaway from all of this, which is all very yeah. interesting and fascinating, is never underestimate the reach of the 52nd Lowland Division. The purpose of this service this afternoon is to ask for God's blessing on all these lovely beasts in front of us. So nicely arrayed and so beautifully done up. It's a most moving sight to watch them coming in. As if they knew, as indeed perhaps in their hearts they do know. 6th of February, 1945. The end in sight in southern Alsace. Yesterday, the 12th U.S. Armoured Division, moving south from Colmar, met the 4th Moroccan Mountain Division coming up from Mulhouse, and thus split in two the German force still holding out around Neubreisach. It looks as if a fair proportion of this rear guard will join the 2,500 prisoners who passed into Allied cages on Monday. Americans are battering at the last defences of Neubreisach and have the escape pontoon bridges under artillery fire. Now, what do we know about Moroccan mountain divisions? Anything? Well, they came from Morocco. <laughs> <laughs> I was being serious. The, the only thing I know is they conquered the island of, island of Corsica, and that's that's really dragging them. That's very mountainous. Well, well, they were part of the the, the French uh, the French expedition corps who were fighting yeah. uh, fighting through um, uh, Italy, and then they get transferred over to um, Northwest Europe, mm-hmm. um, and they uh, they didn't participate in the, the, the invasion of southern France, um, but they landed there sort of later on in the year, and they were moved up to um, Alsace, which is mountainous terrain with the French forces, um, and against um, some German mountain troops or Gebergjäger. So they would have been part of, the, of what the um, oh, FFI, the French Forces of the Interior, wouldn't they? Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah. And um, the, the interesting thing is, of course, they were they were um, they fought all the way through uh, southern Germany into sort of uh, Bavaria and places like that, which is obviously mountainous. Mm-hmm. And there's a fantastic book um, by a, 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 an author called Julia Boyd, and I don't know if you've read it as well. Yeah, a oh, village yes. in the Third Reich. Yeah, it's a fantastic. It gives you a full history of this village all the way in Germany, really in the southern in the southern alps um it's a really amazing book it's, it talks about how the the nazi system slowly percolated through the village and how people resisted but how people didn't and of course one of the things is the moroccan troops ended up in that village and of course uh through nazi indoctrination and, and racism and all the rest of it they were really really worried about these moroccan troops if they viewed them as, as as all sorts of things as you could imagine but actually, as it turned out, the Moroccans treated the Germans much, much better than the French or the national French troops, because they didn't have any of the any of the, the sort of national hang-ups at the, between French and Germany. And, and actually, they, they, they were really popular with the locals, and they treated the, the locals with respect, and vice versa. So it's a re- it's, it's, that's a fantastic book. We don't normally do book, <laughs> book recommendations on the Lowndar, but that's one of them. That, that's, it's one of the most standout books the last few years, isn't it? It is. I'd completely forgotten that they were mentioned in there. Can you remember the name of the book? Uh, A Village in the Third Reich by Julia Boyd. Perfect.
Hello everybody, it's Andy here. I'm just uh, interrupting this episode to talk to you about the up-and-coming tour that we're doing to Germany and the Netherlands. Tours, of course, Walking with the Jocks, where we follow in the footsteps of Peter White and his jocks in the fight through the Roar Triangle and up to the Rhineland and Operation Veritable. We're going to have a look at trenches, cemeteries, we're going to look at battle damage, or spang as we like to call it. Me and Merrin would really lovely to see you there. So all you have to do is go to walkingwiththejocks.co.uk. That's our website. In there, it'll give you all the instructions. It'll give you a little bit more information about the tour. And also, you'll be able to fill in a booking form. And hopefully, um, you'll be able to get yourself on the tour. So just a reminder, that's walkingwiththejocks.co.uk from the 11th to the 14th of October. We'd love to see you there. Go and check it out. And now, you can return to the episode. Sixth of February, nineteen forty-five. Civilian jobs. One of the thousands of men and women discharged from the services last year, only sixty-two had to appeal to the Ministry of Labour for reinstatement in their pre-war jobs. In forty-two cases, the Ministry found that the employer had at fault and awarded compensation or reinstatement. See, I had to look this up. This was the the, the Military Training Act that got passed in May nineteen thirty nine, um, which meant that anybody who was called up had a right of reinstatement in their original job. But did you know they also got a payment as well? No, I didn't know. What kind of like a, a kind of sort of furlough payment? Yeah, yeah. They they exactly. That's exactly right. They got um, a certain um, amount of money depending on how long they've been in the service. It was week by week, and mm-hmm. depending on on which rank they were. And the government put aside one hundred million pounds to, to to settle all all the debts that were due, compared with thirty six million pounds that was um, allotted in the first world war. Wow. That was that, yeah. I had to look that. That was in Hansard. I tell you what, that entire page in Hansard is an absolute font of information. It mentions um, prisoners of war um, in Canning Town um, causing all sorts of uh, ructions because there were non-Nazis and Nazis in the same camp, and nobody could decide. <laughs> non, nobody could decide which Germans were bad Germans, which Germans were good Germans. And I tell you, the other thing that was on the same page. Yep. The white fish industry in Scotland was kicking off all over the place because there was a committee that was set up without having any expense money allotted, but the committee on the herring industry, um, presided over by the Right Honourable and gallant member for Kelvin Grove, Lieutenant Colonel Elliot, got all the provisions it wanted for any expenses it wanted to incur. So there you go. Friend, always- <laughs> friend of the show, the herring. <laughs> always check out Hansard. <laughs> Tenth of February, nineteen forty-five, Canadian Army advances five miles. British and Canadian troops in their attack southeast of Nijmegen had, at dawn yesterday, advanced almost five miles on a front six miles wide. Between the Maas and the Rhine, British troops have taken some dozen towns and villages and are now halfway from their starting point to the German town of Cleve. They have reached the outskirts of the Reichswald forest and have already penetrated the outer defence of the extension of the Siegfried line, which was found to be very thinly manned. More than 1,800 prisoners have been taken. North of this, the Canadians are fighting one of the strangest battles of the war. The land is covered to a depth in places of five feet of water, and the Canadians are travelling from one German strongpoint to the next in amphibious buffaloes. In both these attacks, the greatest difficulty our men are facing seems to be the mud rather than the Germans. 
The latter still seemed to be dazed as a result of the terrific barrage with which the attacks were opened, together with the very heavy air support, which General Creerar has described as superb. The first and third armies have continued their stubborn advances into Germany, with the latter meeting particularly heavy resistance in their bridgehead positions. In Alsace, all German resistance west of the Rhine has ceased, and the first French army now stands on the banks of the Rhine from the Swiss frontier to about 10 miles north of Strasbourg. Over a thousand RAF heavy bombers were out attacking various German targets on Thursday night. Berlin was visited by mosquitoes, and an oil plant near Stettin was heavily attacked. Buffaloes. Come on, buffaloes. Amphibious buffaloes. Uh, well, they're, they're LVT landing vehicle tank, so they are a tracked amphibious vehicle. A little bit of armour on them, light armour. Uh, mm. More famously used in the Pacific, so you'll see yeah. the Marines uh, and some of the Army troops in the Pacific landing on them. But, of course, used by the 52nd Lone Division in the Shell Estuary on uh, South Bedland and That's Walkern. Um, the Canadian, Canadians got a, got a lot of history using them because they used them a lot in the Shell as well. But this, mm. this battle, so this is the 10th of February, um, mm. and by this point the attack has really bogged down, literally bogged down. So mm. the Canadians, and, and I'll post a map, there's a really good uh, map by, uh, I think it's uh, the official Canadian history of the Second World War, um, and we'll post that on Twitter because it shows you all of the different stages of the battle and arrows, and it's it's it's, it's map porn basically. Um, but it shows you the area, the flooded area that the Canadians had to, to tackle, and it's astonishing. It's almost the same mm. size as the area flooded that the British had to do, uh, and of course. At the same point, the Canadians are going from village to village on buffaloes, attacking sort of basically little islands in that area. The British are also fighting through the Reichswald and really not making much progress at all. Uh, it also mentioned the air support that was coming in, um, and actually, famously, the, the the medieval city of Cleve was uh, almost completely destroyed mm. by uh, air attack on the orders of of Horrocks, friend of the show. Um, and I think uh, probably one of his biggest mistakes, I think, probably fair to say, in that it destroyed a, a medieval city which was kind of unrivaled in terms of its architecture, but also in terms of the defenders, what it did was it flattened the, and it created a per perfect area for defence. The, the buildings had collapsed. There was loads of uh, places that the, the parachute army, the German parachute army, could reinforce, and it actually really slowed it down even more. He he regretted that the rest of his life when he wrote his book. Yeah, 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 and you can see interviews with him where he where he where he acknowledges that was a mistake. In fact, I think probably in terms of all of these battles, I think the Reichsfalls and and Veritables, uh, his part of it was probably one of the worst. It was a it was a bit of a slogging match. It was a sledgehammer against a nut, but the nut was incredibly difficult. I tell you what else we should mention, and you just, just mentioned um, a great bit of map porn there. There is a map on this page, and actually looking at it. If you think about the Allies going from west to east, moving across the Rhineland, then mm -hmm. from north to south, you've got this perfect defensive line, which is the River Maas, okay? And then you've got the River Waal, which is to the north of it, just running north of Nijmegen. Yeah. But, but I tell you what, just to the north of that is the River Lech, and people don't talk about the River Lech very often when they perhaps should do a bit more because they get sidetracked by a bridge too far over the River Lech to Arnhem. So I, I'd never heard of the River Lech. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of the rain, the vowel, the mass. <laughs> we talk about the mass all the time. I know, I know. Uh, uh, what, what the interesting thing about just going back to veritable, which I, I'm, I'm clearly banging on about a lot today. Yeah. Um, it starts uh, west to east, and then it turns 
right and it actually goes north south so actually yeah. later on next week we'll talk about it. it starts to go south and, and and literally it starts to go south i'm also not convinced by the um the scale on this map which shows <laughs> 10 miles <laughs> no good listening 10th of february 45 home network 1855 those were the days 20 hundred hours music hall 2130 Strife by Galsworthy. Forces Network. 1915, Music from the Movies. 2115, Music of the Footlights. 2200 Hours, The Canadian Show. Now, we should point out that um, when, when they say The Canadian Show, they're talking about Robert Farnan, who was, um, oh, he was a composer, an arranger, jazz trumpeter. He was commissioned as a captain in the Canadian Army, and he became the conductor and arranger of the Canadian band of the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force. Did well, you know that? that? Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm not Canadian, do I have to turn off then? <laughs> also, here's a question. Um, yeah. uh, 1855 on the home network, on the home yeah. service, uh, yeah. those were the days. What days are they referring to? Because if we said those were the days nowadays... Hmm. Would we be talking about the 1970s? I don't know. What what what's what were those were the days in 1945? I've, I've got an idea. It's 1920s, 1930s. But I tell you what, I'll try and put together um, tiny. There must be snippets of what they were listening to. Oh I'll, yeah, definitely, I'll, definitely. I'll dig them out. Yes, it's Bing Crosby in the Kraft Music Hall with John Scott Trotter, his orchestra and chorus, Eugenie Baird, the charioteers, and our special guest this evening, the distinguished and dynamic pianist-composer, Duke Ellington. Say, um, uh, well, don't look now, Bing, but has it occurred to you that John Scott Trotter's dropped a little ballast? Oh, yes. That boy has definitely taken a modicum of Scott off Trotter, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. How do you do it? Diet. Oh, Ken. what diets are you using? Harper's Bizarre Diet or 18-Day Diet? It's a brand new diet, Ken. Oh, what's it called? The Battle of the Bulge. <laughs> now, while we accentuate the positive, he's going to try and de-emphasize his derriere. You've got to accent. Chew at the positive. Be Minded to negative, latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between. You got to spread And finally, we go to this week's slot for the day on the 10th of February, 1945. We are people yet, though all men else their nobler dreams forget, confused by brainless mobs and lawless powers. Thank whom. Thank him who has isled us here and roughly set his Britain in blown seas and stormy showers, Tennyson. That's the man himself. Okay, uh, who is the man? <laughs> what do you mean, who's the man? I've heard of Tennyson, but I don't... What, is it... I don't it's, even know his name. It's Alfred Lord Tennyson. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's Alfred Lord Tennyson, and this is from the um, Ode on the Death of the Duke of Wellington. Let me let me, uh. give, let me give it a go, all right? Because if you do the bit just before and the bit just afterwards, it bit makes a bit more sense. Honour to him, eternal honour to his name. A people's voice. We are a people, yet though all men else their nobler dreams forget, confused by brainless mobs and lawless powers... 
Thank him who isled us here and roughly set his Britain in blown seas and storming showers. We have a voice with which to pay the debt of boundless love and reverence and regret to those great men who fought and kept it ours. I mean, it's been a while since we've heard about <laughs> the Duke of Wellington. Um, oh, does that make sense to you? It, it's beautiful. Okay. Honestly, <laughs> it is. <laughs> I, well, it, well, I have to say you read it beautifully. Um, mm. I just, it just doesn't connect with me. I, I am a heathen, aren't I? Yeah, you are a bit when it comes to poetry. Should we wrap it up? I think we better do. Yeah, I think yeah. we better had. All right, I'll see you next time. See ya. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander. The Lowlander was written, produced, and presented by Andy Aitchison and Merrin Walters. This was a hellish good production. Due to unforeseen circumstances, there are no classified football results for the week of the 5th to the 11th of February 1945. As a replacement, we go to the Forces Network for a rendition of All the Blue Bonnets or the Border.
they went in there and they just saw the bloody Germans off. They were hideous good. 